0: So we're continuing our theme of the happiness of non-grasping, and just generally uh, look at happiness and how it arises. And last night I talked about the kinds of happinesses that we're all familiar with, like getting what we want or getting rid of things that are bothering us, the happiness of non-regret, the happiness of a balanced non-agitated mind, quiet mind. And these happinesses, these more ordinary happinesses arise in one way or another when we get what we want. You know, a non-agitated mind, the feeling of non-regret, getting rid of the monsters in our lives or getting the sweets in our lives. And then there's another kind of happiness, which is the happiness of not being dependent on what comes and goes. So it's not so much getting what we want or getting rid of what we don't want, even really wholesome acquisitions like peaceful state of mind. It's a heart or mind that's independent of what comes and goes or independent of neediness, you could say. And we call this a spiritual journey. In the Upanishads, the... Ancient teachings in the yogic tradition, or what we now sometimes call Hinduism. Um, there's a story of a character, Nachiketa. Nachiketa uh, was mentioned a couple different places in those ancient texts, but there's one particular collection, um, the Kata Upanishad, from the fifth century in this current era. And, uh, this is, uh, one version of this story is told in Jack Hornfield's book, After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. Some of you know that wonderful book. But you see the story or this retelling in different places, and it's told a little differently. But basically, there's a young man, and he's, uh, his father is either sometimes a sage and sometimes a wealthy merchant, depending on the version of the story but uh, um, wants to get something from the gods, as was the way it worked back then. And you'd, do a, you'd work with the Brahmins and have a, like a sacrifice or some big ceremony, and you'd put up the money for it, or you'd sacrifice some things, and then you'd get some boon or something from the gods, depending on who you did the worship, the ceremony for. Some of you know, like in the Hindu yogic tradition, there's a whole pantheon of different deities representing different aspects of nature or the mind. So the sun was uh, disgusted by the superficiality of all this, like somehow you could buy your way into a better life in the future or some kind of spiritual boon. It was a matter of some ceremony or putting out some money and not only that like in one version of the story the father was you know supposed to give everything and uh, but he, he only gave the sick cows and the, you know things that were not the best and so the son just seeing this and probably as a lot of of us did in our teen years early 20s where you we did you know we do even now but especially then it's so poignant how we see through the superficiality of our parents' values and the more generally the cultural values and we want to reject them. And the son did, and he said, uh, So you're giving everything a value for the ceremony. Well, what about me? Aren't I a value? He kind of prodded his dad in this way, and his dad was embarrassed and then angry and said, Okay. I give you to, I give you to the Lord of death as a sacrifice, yama. And uh, the son immediately, being kind of brash and in his face, said, oh, I accept. And <laughs> <laughs> he then ran away to the Lord of death. You know. So in that culture, it meant you know, going off into the wilderness alone the dark places, to the scary places, and for three nights and three days sat there uh, basically taunting death, you know, or if you're there, here I am, take me. And uh, And in that period of sacrifice and giving up his life and going beyond fear, he entered this realm of the Lord of Death and the Lord of Death's assistants appeared. Pestilence, what is it? War, pestilence, and I forget what the third assistant is, but you can probably ima- imagine. And they uh, said, well, the Lord of Death isn't here right now. <laughs> but he'll be back He's collecting rents. And uh, he'll be back. Uh, and so the young man decided to stay. He sat there, unafraid or working with this fear that did come up and uh, sure enough three days later the Lord of Death appeared and I was quite impressed that not only was there somebody there but the person had been waiting for three days. Obviously most people aren't looking for the Lord of Death and when they get close they run. So he was impressed and uh, welcomed him and asked his forgiveness for keeping him waiting and said uh I'm very impressed with your patience. I'd like to offer you a boon. You can have three wishes. And uh, in that whole process of not so much the angry and provocative way that he left his dad, but in that time alone, um, he had gained some wisdom. So he had three good responses to these three wishes. The first was he asked for the power of forgiveness, And the wish that his dad thought of him as he first felt for him when he was being born. You know, that joy and gratefulness. Um, And also asked to forgive his father. So he asked for the power of forgiveness. And, uh, sort of interesting, you know, here, Nacha, uh, Nacha Keta, he's a, like the archetype of a spiritual seeker and just understanding like we can't really open to new places with a lot of unfinished business. And so just having some intuition about wanting or needing to resolve, put down the weight and or maybe more to the point, put down the pain of the past, not carry it along because it gets in the way. It really weighs us down and confuses the mind so he asked for forgiveness, and the Lord of Death was impressed with that wish, and got that. And then, uh, he, they loaded SSO, and what is your second? And, uh, Natsuketa asked for inner fire. And back then, of course, the, the fire ceremony was like the prize ritual of the Brahmins and sort of at the center of the culture. But, in a deeper sense, this inner fire is about uh, a kind of strength or fearlessness or courageousness or ardency, so that it's like shakti. Some of you know that word shakti, that primal energy, and really we don't do much in life without some access to shakti. We have to feel inspired or moved, uh, we have to have some way to be enlivened by life in order to do anything with this life. Otherwise life, and I know we all know this experience at times of it, life being a drudgery. It's like it's all we can do to get out of bed and the only thing that's getting us out of bed is that we're just afraid of the consequences. It's not like we're moved to do anything in life. We just don't want to be more beaten up than we already are by losing our job or disappointing somebody or whatever it is that motivates us to get up and do what we have to do. And that's very different than like that, you know, provocative way that Nacha Keta went off into the woods, you know, really inspired to see, well, is there a Lord of Death, to see what's out there. And I'm sure we felt, most of us have at least once, if not many times in our life, felt moved to do what wasn't easy to do, just the, the energy was there, just carried us along. And if we're really honest, we wouldn't even say that I did that, I made that happen. It was more like I couldn't not do that, or something made me do that. So he asked for this inner fire, this power, and uh, the Lord of Death granted that wish he came alive with that energy, fearless energy, and then now the third wish, and he asked for he'd asked he asked to see that which was immortal, and it so surprised the Lord of Death. He said, "Are you sure? You know, you could have anything. You could be all powerful. You could be surrounded by everything you find attractive." And he kind of made, uh, help Nachiketa see all these wonderful things that he didn't choose. Um, and Nachiketa asked, well, are any of these things, uh, you know, immune to impermanence? Like, wouldn't He said something like, wouldn't they, in a relatively short time, fall under your dominion, being the lord of death, being the lord of change? and fall away. And the Lord of Death, being honest, had to acknowledge, yeah, that's right. He was really impressed. And uh, so Nachiketa said, well, no, I I think I'll just like to see that which is immortal. And so the Lord of Death acknowledged the wisdom of his request and said, uh, well, all I can really do for you is give you this mirror. Can't really tell you or show you directly But I can give you this mirror and remind you um, of this uh, most important of all questions. Who am I? Or what is the self? And uh, the direction of that, you know, finding the answer to that question was really about seeing what's already here and now that which is immortal, or in Buddhism we say, that which is the unconditioned, not conditioned, not about what comes and goes. That's what's here and now, sort of the essence of the Dhamma, the Buddha waking up to the way it is, when the wakefulness of the mind is no longer confused by what comes and goes, then it's said that one has insight into Nibbana, or the unconditioned. That, that which doesn't come and go. So in this chapter, uh, Jack Cornfield distills this spiritual archetype as, you know, just the process of moving toward happiness, beginning with, uh, he says, a fierce um, disenchantment with the superficiality. And we can see that just in terms of our desire for comfort. It's not that comfort is inherently bad. It's not. Comfort is nice. But it's, it's never ending. You know, it's not really an end. It's more like a prison. The need to be comfortable. And the thing is, Once we get a little comfortable, it's like um, there's always a need for more. I mean, this is, I think, why people like to go backpacking, although these days with technology, backpacking can be incredibly comfortable. (laughs) It's amazing, you know, and amazingly expensive to have all the right gear to, you know, be hundreds of miles away from civilization with the most high-tech equipment that only a very advanced civilization could create. There's a kind of irony in that. I used to... I did a lot of backpacking in the early 80s with a couple friends, and they used to kid me because I was very sophisticated about being comfortable backpacking. I mean, I I don't necessarily consider myself neurotic but in that, but I... <laughs> But I, I like solving problems. And it's just like... and it. But it's part of this thing about, like, where is the end of comfort? There is no end. There's always a way to be a slightly more comfortable. And you just... All you have to do is walk down the aisle at Costco or any one of those big box stores and just to see the diversity of items that support comfort I mean it's amazing you can type I think almost anything into Amazon and they'll have it there and not only one they'll have lots of things and lots of related things and things that usually go with that thing <laughs> and what other people who wanted that thing also wanted <laughs> so we need a uh, Because that's such a strong tendency, that superficial but very real desire for comfort, we need a fierce disenchantment, like a a fierceness that comes. This is partly why Machiketa needed that inner strength or that inner fire to overcome that momentum or inertia of the, the desire for comfort and just see the limitations of it, and to see all the ways, you know, like all the ways that people are into prolonging life, I'm into prolonging my life, eating good food, things like that, but it just, it gets so weird after a while, this uh, addiction to youth, youthfulness, and all the way that it manifests, and uh, the addiction to safety, and so happiness requires a very fierce disenchantment with the kinds of happinesses that are limited. Because otherwise we're just going to get sucked in by the whirlpool, you know, cultural and within our own hearts and minds that would just keep drawing us back. I've seen that, you know, when I was younger and really on fire with the practice, you know, it was uh, it, it was easier to not have a comfortable place. I didn't mind not having a comfortable place, but now I, I kind of like having a comfortable place <laughs> to live. I have a really nice office. I have a really nice home. I have a really nice partner. You know, I have a nice car. I have a lot of nice things. I now this fall got a nice smartphone. <laughs> I have a nice computer, and uh, it's, we think, you know, I think that, well, it's okay to have nice things, I'm, you know, I'm okay if they go away, but how do we know that we're not attached? So there's something about, it's more than a metaphor, this going out into the wilderness or leaving things behind because how do we know who has our loyalty, like where our allegiance really lies? Is it with the stuff in our lives or the comforts in our lives? Or are we taking refuge in an understanding that is immortal? Like in Buddhism, I mean in Theravada Buddhism, sometimes Nibbana, this awakening to the unconditioned, is called the deathless. Because from this superficial level. That's what we want. We, we don't want to be part of... All of our desire for comfort is in opposition to mortality and like not being in control. So we want... It's, and it's okay. It's really... It's not like that desire is bad. It just needs to be refined. What we really want is safe safety. That's actually one of the synonyms of Nibbana. Some of you, I'm sure, have noticed in the corner of the community room we have Kendrick's Kendrick Ronsky, a local artist and community member, did a little mobile with the 33 synonyms of Nibbana, of the unconditioned. They're just floating around and one of them is safety. That is what Nibbana is. It's what's really safe. So it's not wrong to want to be safe. We just need to refine what that might mean. We have to expand our imagination about what actually might lead to true safety or to the deathless or to peace instead of, you know, a big house or this or that. The next part of the spiritual life that comes out of the story is, you know, going into the unknown. So in the story it's Nachiketa leaving and going off into the, scary place, and uh, staying put, and willing to face whatever came, because, you know, whatever it is, it's already there. Like, if there is a Lord of Death, well, there's a Lord of Death. Do we gain anything by not knowing it? Like, what actually, like, how do we become more safe not having met the Lord of Death? And you know how that saying goes, it's like things are always worse than they actually are. Our imagination of dangers is always worse than the actual experience. Whatever it is, you know, that we've been afraid of, when it actually happens, it's maybe there are examples of where it is worse, but usually our imagination and that resistance makes it so much worse when we finally give ourselves to the way that it is, it's always a relief because at least we're not resisting it. So facing the unknown. And then there's the forgiveness piece, like reconciling unfinished business that ties us down. And this is, we see all the time. And in the teachings of the Buddha, he makes a big point of this in terms of developing deeper states of samadhi, stillness of the mind, that as we aim in that direction to really quiet the mind down, what arises? All the unfinished business, all the places of regret, we have to process, we have to forgive, we have to be willing to feel the pain of the mistakes we've made and forgive ourselves because otherwise it haunts us. I mean, it quite literally haunts us, all of our mistakes, all of the injustices we believe were done to us. It keeps us, it keeps the practice from progressing, unfolding. So we have to process that. A lot of times it's like what prevents the spiritual bypass where we, you know, We have some sense, like real wisdom, but just preliminary wisdom, some sense of all the mess of our heart, all the pain, all the disappointments, all the feelings of betrayal, all the blaming our culture for being oppressive or being unwise or feeling guilty for being one of the oppressors, or all of that stuff. And we want to do this spiritual bypass where we go right to freedom without realizing that the what we're not wanting to see or feel or know is exactly what's in the way. So one way or another, we have to address that emotional pain. And generally, you know, the, the tool is forgiveness, forgiving others and forgiving ourselves. And then... Next step is the, the real strength of heart that's required because then we have to, re, we have to, uh, we get some intuitive sense of the journey basically that it asks everything, that we don't get to take anything with us. You know, and there's so many, when you look at mythology, there's so many stories basically telling the same thing, which is somebody on a spiritual quest being stripped bare. And uh, so what allows us to be stripped bare with no protection? Like this is this is uh, where doubt comes in. For a lot of us, that's the being stripped bare. It's like, we'll do anything. We'll sit with physical pain. We'll, you know, face financial ruin by paying for another retreat or <laughs> whatever we do. But then when the monster of doubt comes, oh, that we can't, no, we demand certainty. But that part of being stripped there is like not knowing what the hell we're doing, not knowing where this even leads, not knowing if we can trust our instincts or trust our teacher's instincts or not knowing what end is up or down. So in a way, that demon, you know, the inner strength we need is to face exactly what for us is what we don't want to see, her face. You know, so for someone like me, it might be doubt. But that might be slightly different or very different for each of you. That thing that's going to require that kind of courageousness, fearlessness. And you can almost, it's almost helpful to have some intuitive sense of what it is, because then you'll have some intuitive sense of the strength that you need. Like, what is it, what is it that will allow me to not back away, to be steady, to trust and relax and say, yes, this too? Because it's always easy to say, yes, this too, to the things that are easy to say yes, this too, to, to, <laughs> it's always the issue of the thing that we don't want to say yes, this to, you know, and sometimes it's, it's like uh, not being loved or respected in some way, like our practice is unfolding, but nobody's noticing, we're not. Being acknowledged for the very real wisdom and healing that's happening. And, you know, so what kind of strength is necessary to say yes this too, Like, that's okay. I'll be the only fully awake human being that nobody noticed. <laughs> Can't you see the rays of light? So that's, you know, it'd be nice if maybe in our small groups tomorrow, you know, a few people will want to be honest and share like what it is that they can't say yes this to to, or what it is that they need some kind of strength that they haven't yet fully found or uncovered in order to say yes this to. And it'd just be fun and and maybe normalizing just to see the diversity of what really scares us, what our heart really closes down to, that just can't imagine that it's okay to say yes to. Now, obviously, death is one. And for a lot of us, death stands for all the others. But it's not the only one. I mean, you always say public speaking, like just being exposed in a public way is that for a lot of people or being mistrusted is a strong one for me. And then the one after that, after Inner Fire, is... Um, it's like the, that distillation where we realize that the only thing we have a right to ask for is the truth, or understanding the truth or understanding the way it is it's like it's all we get so it's that distillation where we realize that is our only refuge that's all we get and fortunately it's enough just that sense like it's the ultimate love affair being interested in the truth this is the symbol of the mirror that nachiketa was uh, offered by the lord of death at the end so it's like using the mind to understand the way it is I read this morning uh, during the guided sit that passage from the Buddha where he says, Lose the greed for pleasure. This is that superficiality where we're led around by that ring in our nose, you know, just so attracted that wherever sense pleasure, you know, whatever feels like a little bit of comfort, we just can't take our attention away from. If we could just be a little warmer, a little cooler, just tweak the spine to get rid of that knot. Lose the greed for pleasure. See how letting go of the world is peacefulness. Letting go of the world is really letting, means letting go of the mind's dependency on the world of sense experiences. It's not about rejecting the world. The Buddha made this very clear that it's not this nihilistic rejection of the world. It's rejection or going beyond the mind's dependency on experience. There is nothing that you need to hold on to and there's nothing you need to push away. And you see, when with that statement, there's nothing you need to hold on to, there's nothing that you need to push away. You can really sense the value of finding a quiet place where you're not uh, bothered, where you feel safe, relatively speaking, to practice that. You wouldn't want to do that in a really noxious place, or a really exciting place. So... The retreat is, by definition, the place where we're willing, where we have a chance to practice not holding and not pushing. The breath comes and goes, but we're practicing not holding and not pushing. Thoughts come and go, disturbing thoughts, interesting thoughts, terrifying thoughts, beautiful thoughts, without holding or pushing away. Feelings of great shame arise because, you know, we pass gas when we're standing in line to get our food, not holding, not pushing away. So whatever it is, it's like this four-line teaching, lose the greed for pleasure. See how superficial, how limited a life dedicated to pleasure really is. See how letting go of this dependency on pleasure is, in fact, has the flavor of freedom. Maybe this is the way. There is nothing you need to hold on to. There is nothing you need to push away. Buddha likens this attachment to pleasure as a monkey swinging from branch to branch. That, you know, we monkey gets one branch, but very quickly is attached, fixated on the next branch. There's always something, and it just, before we know it, we're 85. We've gone from one sense pleasure to another, and it literally fills our lives. Another place the Buddha says, whatever bliss in the world is found in sensual pleasures, and whatever there is of heavenly bliss uh, he's going to give a counterpoint to this but when he's talking about the bliss that can be found in the world including heavenly bliss he's not talking about what we would consider nice a nice time like uh this is the great thing about buddhist cosmology when they talk about heavenly bliss they know they know how to use their imagination or maybe it's not their imagination maybe they have some memory or some experience of these more expanded realms of existence. But like uh, one of the realms is your, the existence is so subtle there is no form, right? A formless realm, meaning that not even, you know, we have a pretty dense form, but then some of the angels, they have just forms of light, right? So they still have a form, you know, that's sort of an energy body, but it's really light. But there are even realms like in the, Description of the realms of existence where there's no form, it's just pure love. And these realms, if you end up in one of these realms, you're there for an incalculable number of years. Pure love, pure bliss, almost forever. And so, and then, so then how comes the counterpoint, you know? So, whatever bliss there is in any of the realms. These are not worth one sixteenth part of the bliss that comes from the end of craving, which is available for a very dense being like us. So this is why in the discourses and in the Buddhist cosmology, you know, whether you want to consider this just sort of myths or sort of archetypal stories or some version of reality, doesn't really matter, but it's just interesting because the these Refined, beautiful beings would come to the Buddha. This guy who poops and gets, uh, you know, gets old and has a bad back and all of the things that come with a human birth, they'd come seek him out. So, this is like a very different version than a lot of religious traditions where the gods are seen as being perfect. And Buddhism too, they talk about the gods, the different realms of existence. It's very exalted, very descriptive. I mean, it, they really are appealing, and uh, and yeah, and then it, not different than the other religious traditions in terms of the omniscience and omnipotence of these beings, except they don't understand that things come and go, and they're identified with their glory. And so when it ends, as all things do, all conditioned things do, there's a real sense of loss and maybe even betrayal, depending on how much wisdom that particular being has in that moment. So they would seek the Buddha out because they intuited that he understood something that they didn't understand. He was free in a way that they weren't free. They were still tied to the rounds of the cycles of samsara, the cycles of suffering, due to being identified. Whoso has turned to renunciation, turned to detachment of the mind, is filled with all-embracing love and freed from thirsting after life. whosoever has turned to renunciation. So this is a path, this path of awakening. What are we awakening to? We're awakening to the reality of non-grasping. Non-grasping is a reality. The reality we know is the reality of grasping. So what we're awakening to is what we don't know. Like we need that humility. We don't, I mean, we know the difference between really intense grasping and less intense grasping, that we know, right? But probably we don't fully know, at least, and maybe don't know much at all about the reality of non-grasping. So we turn to this path of letting go, or, you know, we're on this path of in the direction of non-grasping. And surprisingly, maybe, you know, because it sounds a little grim, but it's an all-embracing love. Like this path of letting go, of non-grasping, turns out to be a path, you know, it's like uh, sometimes we talk about it as letting go of everything, but it could just as easily be talked, as, talked about as opening up to everything, including everything. Belonging, holding, realizing everything. Right? Because when we're not holding to anything, what separates us from anything? It's the grasping that separates us. When there's a mind that grasps, then the mind has, that mind has turned things into good and bad. It has created the experience of separation. And that experience of separation is always uneasy. It's never, that's dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of grasping, of separation. So tomorrow I'll talk about how uh, this path of renunciation, this path of letting go, it often the way the Buddha taught at least, it often begins by recognizing the danger of sensual pleasures. And this is a confusing thing for us because sensual pleasures don't, on the surface, appear to be dangerous. You know, sitting down with your community tonight, having a nice meal that people prepared for you in that silence, that's a really nice sensual experience. Where's the danger in that? That's a useful question. Is there a danger in this? What might the danger be to have an open mind so that we're looking, what is the danger and what's not the danger? Is it the pleasantness itself that's dangerous? Is there danger in pleasantness? And it's really about being spellbound by the pleasantness. It's not the pleasantness as much as the kind of spell it can cast on the mind. So breaking this spell, you know, it's really about using craving as an anchor, as an object of meditation. We're really looking at the desiring and the identification with the desiring process. Like how nice that meal was, if there is any attachment, then as it ended, it's like a sense of wanting to linger. Oh, we got to clean up now. Or somebody in one of the small groups said, uh, you know, just gave this great sharing about being with the food and just, just feeling the, you know, the immensity of the pleasantness of the whole thing. And, uh, but, but not able to not fall into being that hungry ghost. Like almost overwhelmed by how wholesome and pleasant it was. And ended up eating more because of not not wanting it to end. And we do this so much. I don't think I'm the only one. (laughs) It seems like we all do this a lot, you know, where we don't want certain things to end. And then we spoil it. We spoil what we do have. We spoil the very real pleasures that do come our way because we're afraid of its ending. And then we miss it. So, um, might be a nice contemplation, and I'll save some time now for maybe people have some examples, but just, uh, anything related to what I've said thus far about the story that I shared, but also about, specifically about the danger of pleasures and getting some clarity about what is actually dangerous, what actually, how does that, how does the mind get, uh, spellbound by pleasantness? or anything else that comes to mind, or any questions about what I cover tonight. So we have about 10 minutes. What comes to mind? Yeah, Casey. So I was just thinking about different activities. that I do one question I've asked myself to sort of check my attitude while I'm doing it, is, For instance, if it was a, a chess game or a TV, Episode, I would, I would ask, well, what? How would I feel if someone just shut this off? If the electricity went out, or if for whatever reason, you know, this just ended all of a sudden, and it really sheds a light on the amount
1: of, of investment, unhealthy investment that's involved in a lot
0: of activity. Yeah, what a great teaching. And that's something that's very doable for us. So whenever we make a purchase, we could do that same sort of thing. Okay, I'll get this. But let me contemplate what it would feel like if it was stolen or whatever, or somebody ran into the car that I'm buying. Because that's actually what we get with any sense pleasure, whether it's as simple as a TV show or some kind of purchase. We don't just get the pleasure that arrives but there will be a loss. We may not be conscious of it because we have our very clever ways of being distracted when the pain of loss, the pain of ending happens. But it doesn't mean that it isn't having an impact on the heart. It's just that we're unconscious. So it's almost worse that we're unaware of that. It'd be better to really notice what's that that is like. I mean, I I used to tell the story a lot of heaven in a while, but in our early years together, Win and I, you know, we'd see movies. We still see movies, but, and I and I noticed after a long time, with some mirroring back by Win, how irritated I was after a movie. And I was just kind of in a yucky and irritable place, and uh, and later, just through reflection and paying close attention, I realized it was a little bit about what you were saying that, I. Uh, I was so appreciating not inhabiting my life for the duration of the movie that then when I had to take birth back into my life after the movie ended, I was sorely disappointed to be (laughs) returning back in this existence. I've always, you know, you probably know there are three kinds of desires, the desire for sense pleasure, the desire to become somebody, and the desire for things to be over. And I, this is one of my strong tendencies. I want things to be over. I am looking forward to things being over. And so that was one of the manifestations. It's like, oh, I still have to live this life. I still have to do the next thing. You know, show up to the next moment, feel the body, do the to-do list, brush my teeth. And, uh, and not being so conscious of all that, I just, uh, felt like, you know, something's wrong, and usually it was my wife. <laughs> but it wasn't her at all. I mean, she might have been imperfect in those moments, but the real irritation was being in my skin, and, but being confused about what was going on. So it was really useful to see that. So now, like, if that happens, it, it doesn't happen as much, but I'm, I'm really looking for that. You know, when things end, I'm really looking, uh, for that feeling. And when I do new things, like even something big, like common ground purchasing the retreat property, my mind now, out of habit, imagines all the worst things that can happen. So that, I mean, as much as my imagination is capable of, I'm not going to be surprised. And of course, there are things that I can't imagine but uh, hopefully they won't be as bad as the things I can imagine. (laughs) Thanks for sharing that, Casey. I think that was really useful to hear. Other thoughts? Yeah, Mira.
2: So then I end up thinking about retreats like that. You know, I mean, because there's this container and it's really special. And I found it in like a half-day retreat, a six-week retreat and then there's going back and you know, especially
0: on, on the longer retreat, I mean, the... the um... Absolutely true. There is, retreats are like medicine and there are side effects. And one of the side effects of retreats is when it ends. And that we really have to manage that. And like you can remind yourself as you're signing up in, when you're in the retreat that this will end. And that there you will be waking up with your day. Without the retreat to support you, and uh, doesn't mean you shouldn't go on retreats. But it does mean that we want to, even though we're doing retreats, we don't want to feel dependent on retreats to save the day. They're just—that's just what we do. Same with the morning sit. And this is the mistake people make: they, they, they start seeing that uh, inevitable shadow to retreats and then they don't want to do them, or to sitting, or to being part of a spiritual community, and then they back away. But it doesn't mean you should back away. It just means that you're integrating the shadow with what's good. The choice about whether to do it or not do it shouldn't be that it has a shadow. It should be whether, you know, in the great scheme of things, it's useful or not. It's functional or not. Because everything has a shadow. The world's messy in that way. Yeah, it is a hard thing, especially the longer retreats, to manage that coming off retreat. Yes, Stephen.
1: Yeah, I was just going to kind of glance off the idea of losing things. I, when I was younger, one time I, I, my apartment was burglarized, and I don't think ever since I've ever had felt I had a firm grip on anything that I owned, and the. It, 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 and on my own security too. Even when somebody comes into your your private space, unasked, and walks out the front door, and you come home and you the door open, and you walk in and your all your all your junk or as much as your junk that they could carry is gone. It, it was a lesson. And I, sometimes I hear about these people in these tragedies. It's you know the, a bad storm or something, and they lose their house. And, I mean, I know that it's very bad when people are harmed by it, or physically harmed by that, but I
0: often think, although there are some people who probably think that's liberating. My house went away. Yeah. It's liberating. All the, all the junk that was in there. Yeah. Marcia Rose. I don't know if you know Marcia Rose. She's a well known Dharma teacher in this lineage, and uh, Wynn teaches a retreat with her um, every other year down in New Mexico. But anyway, uh, she has a great story of, I think it was right at the beginning of her sort of, at least this part of her spiritual path, where her house burnt down, and I think her kids had just finished growing up, and so they were out of the house, but she had accumulated, as you might imagine, a lot of stuff over those years, and just burnt down, all that stuff burnt down, and uh, yeah, I don't think she looked back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mary. I just
2: was thinking about this a lot, because I... I mean, I mentioned that I just lost my girl dog. Well, almost every picture I had of her was on my smartphone because I didn't have a functional camera for a long time. And the card in there, gone. And it, why? I mean, I've done technology for 25 years. Why did <laughs> I of this as technology and I should back it up? So nothing's backed up. And here I am, and I go to Sprint, and they can't do anything, and I go to the Geek Squad, and I'm standing at Best Buy, and I'm starting to cry while this guy's telling me. I'm like, Mary, don't cry in Best Buy. She was telling me that he can't get anything off of there. And I just, I mean, all of a sudden, I'm just, oh, and he's like, well, look, all right, so then I ended up calling the data a recovery well, you know, six to twelve hundred dollars, and I'm just so I just was giving a lot of thought to how much is it worth to me to get those pictures? Does it really matter that you know? And weighing well, I thought I wanted this. Well, do I want this or the pictures? The pictures, and I just kept. It was. I mean, I spent about a week doing this until yeah. I accidentally figured out that Google is a lot smarter than me. And in fact, <laughs> thank goodness, but. I just, I really, how much were, I just really had to think about how important were they and did it really matter in terms of, you know, my relationship with her and all those things, if I had those pictures. And I never did get it resolved. I suspect I would have paid them all the But it did
0: come to that. And this is that, uh, you know, one of those archetypal things is that gateway that we don't want to go through. And this might be one of those gateways for you. And even though you somehow averted this, uh, Google, once again, (laughs) corrupts us. But uh, you can still imagine that because we need to, any way that we can, we need to imagine losing what we don't want to lose. Being stripped bare. We have to use the imagination. I mean, we use the imagination in so many ways that are destructive. Let's use the imagination in ways that's really productive. Because uh, we have to imagine if that can be okay. This was, this kind of imagining was what really set me off on my path in 1982. I imagined basically this losing everything. I just imagined death. And it was a real you know, intense imagination. I gave it my all. And, uh, and something, there's like a breakthrough experience where, uh, it was okay. So, and that, that just set me on this path with so much vigor, so much confidence, and, uh, not looking back. So we these things, when we bump up against things in our life where every seemingly every cell is saying no, then we want to appreciate that as an important place. Now maybe not in that moment where we're overwhelmed, but in other moments where there's a little bit more space, we want some kind of thought like, this might be interesting to think about, to contemplate, especially now that it's resolved.
2: Right. Well, and I thought about you know the people the tornado goes through
0: and everything's
2: gone. I mean, mm-hmm.
0: and that's going to be the inevitable result. I mean, everything will be gone. So it's just a matter of time. You know, and even even this uh, the the different teachings on rebirth. It's like it doesn't really matter because in most you know ninety nine point nine percent of the time this is the best scenario, and I don't really know what the truth is, so I'm just sort of, like, best scenario, the slate gets wiped clean, you don't remember anything anyway, so what does it matter that there was a previous life? We, for all practical purposes, we lose absolutely everything. And we know that with a pretty high degree of confidence. So... <laughs> So, but you see what you see what a setup that is. Like, why aren't we, why why aren't we looking at this? This is that disgust that Nachiketa felt about the superficiality. Like, this is an obvious truth that everybody spends a lot of money and time avoiding. And isn't that interesting? Is that do we want to buy into that? Yeah, it has to be. We'll end with you, Paul. <coughs>
1: Uh, I left for a short time at lunch today to go and get salad things for tonight. And um, I was feeling this inner happiness that had been gone for a while. Uh, And I, I felt happy when I saw the faces Of the kids who were eating at the co-op and they had food all over themselves and they were very intent on eating. And um, I thought, well, I want to cling on to this stuff. I I want to to be happy. Um, And this thought came to me that, you know, when, when, um, when I'm receptive, wonderful things arise constantly in my life. Why should I worry that this moment is going to pass? Because I know that these moments of beauty and joy are constantly welling up. And, uh, damn, (laughs) let's go that, you know? Let's do
0: that. It reminds me of that line from the Bible, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all else will be added unto you. you know, we don't, we have to be a little careful telling ourselves stories like that. But that's our actual experience. The more we let go, the more things open up, the richer life is. That is a direct experience that all of us have probably had in different moments. Thanks for the sharings, everyone. Let's just take a few seconds. Let go of the words. Thanks for listening.